So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. I mean, you need to embrace it because that's just the way the world is today, right? Everything is social. Everything is digital. People are glued to their phone. I mean, it's almost depressing that you go out and, well, when we could go out and sit at restaurants, certainly not in Los Angeles now, but you see from the older parent to the little kids are all glued to their phones. Uh, so some things aren't great, but, but that's where the conversations are going, not just for young kids, right? My mom is on her WhatsApp all the time and she's almost 80. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Beatriz Acevedo. How do I do on my pronunciation there? Excellent. A plus. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have done a lot of fun things. Can you can you give us a bit of a quick overview? And, and then let's dive into some of this stuff, including the new one. So, Of course. Listen, I started pretty young in my career as an entrepreneur. I am originally from Mexico, so I'm a, I'm a very proud Latina and immigrant entrepreneur, but lived in the States for over 25 years now. I live in Los Angeles. I started in media, um, doing radio when I was a kid. When I was eight, I was a child announcer, then eventually moved on to television. I was a writer, a producer, a host. And that brought me to the U.S. to launch a company here to produce original content in English and Spanish and in Portuguese for all the cable networks when the whole TV cable disruption was happening over 20 years ago. And then in the process, I was incredibly frustrated, I guess, out of you know any entrepreneur that launches a new company to fill a void on something that is not being done. That even though I was one of the few, I think it's the 1% actually of Latinos who are showrunners in this country, that I had the opportunity to produce my, my own shows, there were very few people from my community that had that opportunity. And even though I was an Emmy award winning producer, even though I was the executive producer of the shows, I did not have the power to break in new talent, right? To really innovate, <laughs> which is what this podcast is all about. I couldn't bring in a new voice. I couldn't bring in a new talent. The networks were incredibly close and they remain that way today. Uh, they're trying to, to change a bit, but no, it was just people who had the experience and nobody was going to take a chance on anybody new. So when I discovered digital, my husband and I ran our own independent production company. And during the time of the digital boom, we had an opportunity to, to produce a very big uh, series for Warner Brothers and director Brian Singer. And because there were so little expectations in digital content at the time, probably a decade ago, we were allowed to hire anybody that we wanted. And that changed everything for us. We were able to bring the most talented digital native group of very young kids 
who were all incredible innovators and everything that we had been doing on TV was disrupted at the time. We were in awe of just how efficient they were, how they did things completely different than how we had been doing it for the past two decades. And we loved it. So that was the launch of my previous uh, startup called Mitu, which was really a digital media company to serve two big goals. One, to become that place where these next generation of storytellers could incubate ideas, stories, character franchises, etc. And on the other hand, to really make feel younger generations, millennials, Gen Zs, that there was a place where they belonged, that they fully belonged as Americans, as English dominant content consumers, that they had a place that got them, which is exactly what they would say about our brand. So first half of my career was fully in traditional media. Then I became a tech entrepreneur, media tech entrepreneur by default. And now I'm in a completely different area as a fintech CEO and co-founder, but I am still very heavily leaning into entertainment. It's at the intersection of finance and entertainment and and pop culture with my new company called Summa Wealth. So I have so many questions. I'm going to save them though. Why don't we hear specifically what Summa Wealth is doing that others aren't? Sure. So Summa Wealth is a fintech company that has a very big lofty goal, which is to help close the Latino, Latina, Latinx wealth gap in our in our communities. You know, it's not it's not something that's going to be easily done, but we want to get going and started. And we think that this will not only be beneficial to our community, but also to the American economy as a whole, as we are the demo that is driving GDP growth most aggressively in our country. So definitely supporting this cohort supports supports the American economy. What we do very differently than any other fintech company, we actually do everything different. Most fintech companies in this country and around the world lead with a product. And they have this mentality, which is all very valid, that if they build it, people will come. And that has been true with most cohorts, except our cohort. And we've said, when you look at the numbers and when you look at the growth of this country, and particularly the youth, I mean, we are a demo that is 19 years old in average. There is no growth or innovation for any brand in this country if you are not in business with our community. So our community is definitely not flocking to these fintech companies. I, I've spoken to a lot of colleagues, CEOs of many of the most visible and successful uh, fintech companies, and they have a very hard time acquiring young kids, young millennials and Gen Zs in our community. And they are leading with great products. I, I fully believe that the products of all these companies are extraordinary, but we, you need to really understand where our community comes from. We come from generations of financial trauma. The countries of origin of our gra- grandparents, of our parents, of our ourselves, if we are immigrants ourselves, we lived through the days where you had it all and in a second you lost it all. A massive devaluation, uh, a moment in a political climate where you could never access your bank account again, etc. So building the trust and building the community for the Latino community is is very critical before you are selling any sort of product or service. We also need to level up our education because 
we don't grow up talking about money, even with parents who are college educated. My parents were college educated and we never had a financial conversation in our household. So we don't, we need to learn so much to catch up to other demographics first, but we also need to heal our post-traumatic syndrome that we have from not trusting these financial institutions. So I would say in a very short response, although I've given you a very long one, what I do very differently is most fintech companies product is king for me community is king and queen not to say i'm not building a product i am but i did not lead with that i wanted to build lead with building the community building the brand and building the trust you know i'm fascinated with what you're doing specifically you know we were talking about my brother-in-law from peru before the show started and I think about some of the conversations he's come to me about for entrepreneurial ideas and thinking about career and finance and business and all that mixed together. And, and I really, I don't know, I guess I got to see a little bit into the world differently because as he was coming up with ideas and he was thinking about his resources, they really were different than mine, even though we both grew up in Canada, they really were a different set of resources, you know? And I think one of the things that I'm most fascinated by is this, this approach that you've taken and bringing what you've learned in media. It seems like there's so much the marketing world has to learn from media because you think about all the things that you've said that let's say so like a lot of young kids would think of that as less academic when they could go watch Netflix or something, but you show up with the entertainment and the memes in your social media and this kind of stuff like can you talk about this idea of like making it magnetic first, making it a magnetic community, like being funny, being relevant, and then worrying about the, the product second? Of course. I mean, listen, you want to be where where pop culture is. You want to you wanna be where the conversation is happening in social, particularly if you are targeting this demographic. And, and I'll talk a little bit about why I... I picked this demographic to really target the entire community because it's really fascinating to, to know what's what's behind that. But it's very important that people, when when people think, and, and this might not just be for, for the Latino community, this could be for anybody who hasn't been included in the money conversation. It just feels, and, and there's so much data about it, and there's a lot of data of women as well, just saying, I'm incredibly confused, right, about all these things about finance or investing or my 401k. It's very daunting. It's very confusing. I feel like I don't understand it. I'm really behind. So we wanted to really get rid of all of that. What we want to unpack everything that is difficult. So if we need to explain a hard inquiry versus a soft inquiry, we will pick a Tuesday to launch a meme on Taco Tuesday, of course, and show how a hard shell taco and a soft shell taco are different and how that applies to a soft and a hard inquiry in your credit, for example, right? So those are the simple things like what are the things that we are emotionally connected with that then we are going to what's trending on Netflix, right? Like what, what are, what's everyone talking about that we can insert ourselves in the conversation and say, this is just like a 401k or this is as confusing as so-and-so, but don't worry, we've got you, right? And here's a blog on how we're going to break down all the different steps that might be daunting to you. So it's very critical that a topic like finance. And, and we had an idea before we launched the company. We thought if we make it very pop culture, if we do it in the same way that we really became the leading brand for this demographic with my previous company, 
we have a hunch that it'll work. Now, you never know until you launch. But once we launched and we had 20, 40 times the engagement of any other fintech in the space that are also cool and millennial and fun with the content that they put out, we thought this is it. Like this is definitely going to work. And the reaction has been incredible by our community just saying, I love everything about what you publish. Like I would have never thought of, you know, a Mexican sweet bread, a concha divvied up in a way on how I divvy up my expenses, right? Or how, you know, we grew up with this ridiculous purple cleaner called Fabuloso. Like if, if you're a Latino, you have a Fabuloso cleaner in your house. Or like if only Fabuloso could clean up your credit, but it can't. So here are five simple tips on how you could do it, right? Things like that, that have that tie to, also it's very important that we tell our community, you belong here. This brand is built for you. Like it's it's a very different feeling to, to, to have and sadly, particularly young kids in our communities don't have that feeling of belonging, which, as we know, is one of the most critical things to have along with food and shelter when you come into like all, all the needs that a human needs. So building a brand where our community feels it belongs is critical, particularly when it's about finance that like we've talked about, we have generational trauma when it comes to trusting financial traditional financial institutions. And when you also have that perception that finance is not for you and it's very hard to comprehend. So I want to talk about just some specific tactics. You know, on the show a lot, we're looking for advice for any kind of entrepreneur, or investor, or philanthropist of how can they accomplish more with less. And I really do feel like this is a great hack of, of instead of just saying we speak their language, like really diving into speaking our client's language, right? Can you talk about this thing I heard on one of your other interviews about 401k, but like K like a question? Everything that we do at Suma, we are very mindful that we do it in culture, right? More than in language. And I think that's that's very, very important. So doesn't mean that for English dominant kids, which are the millennials and the Gen Zs, you will never do something in Spanish. You might, you might need to do something when it's a mom responding, where the situation is right, where you need a slang. It's, it, there's certain exceptions to that rule, but you always wanna make sure you're doing it in culture. What feels authentic, well, what feels right. One example of a series that we have, and this talks a little bit also about how you wanna build a community that feels safe in not knowing. When they see that thousands of people feel exactly like them, we have a series called 401 get like 401 what right and people love it because they're like this is the you know this is the my face which is a very typical soap opera woman crying when somebody asks me about my 401k and these young kids are not watching that soap that's something probably their mom or, or their grandparents watch and that's how you make it multi-generational that's how you sort of like bring back that nostalgia of how they grew up. But there's this very particular wink to the culture with that image and the word que instead of K that says this is for you, right? This post, this brand, this company and this community. And there's thousands of people, as you see in the comments, saying, oh, my God, that's exactly me. I've been always wanting to ask, but I was afraid. I didn't want it for people at, at work to think that, you know, I'm an idiot or that I don't know. So that's exactly the response that we're hoping to get for our community. It's safe. We've got you. There's thousands of people like you. And this is built just for you. And we know how you feel because we are you. 
You know, I think there's so much in that. One of the things that I think for business owners sometimes is we get into a business that we seem to know something about or, right? And and we have that curse of knowledge of like, we know stuff at like a level 10 or, or a level eight. And we're like, oh, oh, I'll just bring it down. I'll bring it down for people. I'll bring it down to a five. But like often our customers are like at a one or a two, you know, in understanding. And I think about, there's a YouTuber who, have you seen these YouTube ads for this guy who has like, a yellow Lamborghini is like, I like my Lamborghini, but I like my books better. And it's, it's like a kind of cheesy. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen no. that? No, I got Anyways. to on my YouTube. I'm sure if I asked my son, he'd be like, I know exactly what that is. So that's- Okay. Well, this other guy was, this other kid who has a yellow Lamborghini was making fun of him. Like, quit pretending you're not super proud of your Lamborghini. And that's why you started a video with it. Okay. Right, right. So I'm like, oh, this is funny. I'm going to see what else he's got. So he's, he's driven all these sports cars with hundreds of thousands of dollars. He makes these videos about, but like the number two most viewed video on all his YouTube is how to not grind the clutch when you drive a stick shift. Right. You're like what? It's really? You got like information, right? $600,000 <laughs> McLarens. And this is what, it, but but you think about beginners are the ones who are most hungry for information. They're the most influenceable. Like if we if we would all take the time to like do the one-on-one of whatever our stuff is, like this is a significant like attraction tool, especially if we don't sell them all at that time, at least is my opinion, feel free to weigh in on that. But I think this idea of like, I, I think my favorite word that you used there was safe. Like make it safe not to know, make it so I can uh, not feel bad about myself. Mm-hmm. that that I haven't been educated on that before. It doesn't reflect on my self-worth as a human being, right? <laughs> and and so you think about like how many industries that would really apply to. But again, back to your point about like in culture, I'm thinking like, it's not always like, it, it could be other cultures like snowboard culture or entrepreneur okay. culture or, you know, whoever your audience is probably has a culture, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, it's very, very important that you don't go with a stereotype or with what the perception is and, and or with a bias, right? Let's call it, let, com, let's just even say the complete, you know, non-rational bias that one, one might have. I'm, I'm such a fierce uh, supporter of women and I'm always talking about how women can do anything men can do. How many, and one time I boarded up and after a conference, actually, at South by Southwest, I boarded my flight and it was a massive 777 Boeing. And there was a woman that was probably shorter than five feet tall, greeting us all, saying she was our pilot. Immediately, my heart started pounding. I had a stomach ache and my bias, my unconscious bias, because I fully think cerebral and my that women can do it. But immediately I thought, oh my, this is a massive plane. Like to me, it looked ginormous. It's like the ones you take like to another continent. And I'm thinking quickly, I thought, will she be able to land this plane in an emergency? Is she strong enough? Is she big enough? Because I only grew up seeing like bigger pilots. It's men, they'll take control. Like, why was I so afraid that a woman, but it's that bias that, and we all have it, right? People say, if you have a, a brain, you have a bias. So I think we have to really check our unconscious biases on anything that we do. And to your point, it's not just for the Latino community, but it's for women, it's for different industries, because that's the one thing that I feel that truly holds you back from innovating. For example, and I'll give you obviously the example of my community, because that's the one I know the most. 
This is a mistake that even people who are CEOs in fintech in my own community make because even to them, and I made it with my previous startup. It's like, oh, it's for Latinos. Let's do the content in Spanish. And you think, okay, well, that will only be for 19% of the U.S. population who prefer to consume their content in Spanish. So if you want to only target 19%, which listen, there are brands that have only targeted that small number and have made billions. So it's not like it's a small market, but are you aware that where the growth is coming, the 81% that nobody's making them feel like they belong? Few brands talk to them in culture and in English and on digital. All the things that you have to unlearn, even within your own culture, to see those opportunities to innovate, to see those opportunities to really build a brand that nobody else has done is very, very important. You know, I love that. It's like, it's almost like, I think about what you're saying of not just going to a stereotype, not going to, you know, slipping into biases. It's almost like taking that extra time up front. It's like, uh, go slow to go fast. Like I think about the, the, in the snowboard community, like you could actually really use stereotypes of like saggy pants, snowboarders from the nineties who were like <laughs> punk kids getting in trouble, but you could use it to make fun of, like, do you know, right. you could actually make fun of the meme even though there's like, there is like a little bit of truth in it. There's like slightly nostalgia, slightly whatever, but you could exaggerate it and make fun of, make fun of the parts that actually don't need to be there, which would make, probably make you identify even more from the insiders, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We make fun of ourselves all the time with, with these memes and with these videos and with, like, where it's like, you know, Latinos doing this and you're like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. This is exactly what my household was like, or this is exactly what my abuela would have done, or this is exactly what, you know, my reaction would be. Or if so-and-so was a Latino, right? And we just sort of like change it around and people are like, oh my God, this is so dead on. And a laugh is okay because it brings down your guard of feeling intimidated to speak about a topic that for generations has been intimidating, not just for our community, but for many other communities. So you want to have that connection. You want to be a human brand. You want them to be, oh, wow, like this is somebody that, you know, I, I, I want to be like, or I want to be a part of this community. So it's very, very important that you have fun. I mean, listen, we have a lot of obviously financial advisors, financial coaches, but we hire comedians our writers are all comedians so once we have the information on that soft and hard inquiry it is not the financial advisor who came up with the idea of taco tuesday between a soft and a hard tortilla shell in the in the credit inquiry it was a comedian right it was like okay let me make this very relatable to our community but obviously if you're not a latino you could still get a laugh out of that visual and that explanation it's for everybody but there is something more if you happen to be of our community. It's like those Robert Rodriguez movies that I always love. They're not just for Latino families or kids, but if you happen to be one, you get probably 10 extra jokes that nobody else got in the movie, but it's still a really great family entertaining movie um, that anybody can appreciate, but we get a bit extra. And because we are so rarely included in media, as you know. We continue to lose representation every single year. We used to be at 6% a decade ago. We're now at 3% representation in media. When we are 50% consumers of entertainment, our community, if you add video games in the, in the mix, 
So whenever there's anything that you see yourself represented, where you feel you belong, where you feel someone's building something for you, it's very, very powerful. I think that's what has been the key for us in our community. We get you and this is for you and you are important to us. You know, I I like what you say and it makes me think about you know, so many people who maybe feel slightly intimidated to break into that community. Like, for instance, us, you know, we are our real estate investment trust. We're mostly working with like big family offices worth tens of millions of dollars stuff right now, right? But we fully plan on doing equity crowdfunding and using some of these new regulations that come in last few years where somebody can invest $10. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like my 16-year-old daughter, she's been bugging me about investing lately. And last night we were having a discussion about whether her first share should be of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway or a Brookfield Asset Management, you know, and I was saying, well, this one's $38 and this one's 17 and this one pays a dividend, this one doesn't, you know, and I think about us looking at that community, right, and going, hey, when we, once we have an offering for there that, you know, that you could get in $10 at a time, it's not $250,000 minimums, right, there can be like a slight trepidation of like not wanting to step in it, not wanting to make a mistake with the stereotype and have backlash and stuff like that. When you think about advice for folks outside the community who want to who want to break into that community, why don't we start with one rookie mistake and one piece of advice? I think the rookie mistake is that just what we just talked about, the bias that you might have, the perception that you really do your research on. First of all, who is your demo? And we didn't get to talk about, but this is a good broad advice who the demo is that we are targeting, but it's great advice for everybody. So a lot of people say, oh, so you're not going to be focused on older Latinos. You're not going to be focused on Spanish Dom. You're not going to be. I'm focused on Gen Z and millennials because they have actually been the sharpest of their families for their entire lives. They have had to translate the American ethos literally and figuratively for their life. Some some kids say, I bought my first car when I was 10. People were like, what do you mean? They had to translate everything for their parents. They had to, they demystify products, services, voting, registering, so many things. So what is really interesting as an advice for everybody, anybody listening is focus on who is the most influential person in that family and in that community. And that tends to be that millennial woman or man, eventually they will be highly influential with their own kids as they now become parents as well. So that's why our focus is on them, on a demographic that is, first of all, is the largest when you think about the number. Second of all, they're the ones influencing the older generation. So you will have the Gen Xs and the boomers by default because they will bring them in. So that's why our products and our services and our website, we have it in Spanish, although our main focus is not to cater to the Spanish dominant, but we, we want to have a resource for our main customer to take off the burden from them to be having to translate everything. So that isn't really incredible piece of advice. Most companies, most brands, because of that bias of thinking Latinos, oh, they speak Spanish, they're immigrant, they watch TV and only soap operas, then they go and target that 19%. If you want to get the 81 plus a 19, because they're highly influential, do what nobody does. Doing culture primarily will be English, primarily will be digital, and think that this demographic 
does not come from abroad. They are American, US born, but they're still very proud about their roots and their traditions and their family and where they come from. So that is a winning demographic that everybody who wants to future-proof their companies, their brands, whatever it is that they're building, needs to be laser focused on. And obviously the way you target, you speak to this demo is very different than the way you speak to somebody who is an immigrant, prefers to watch soaps, watch you know traditional TV shows instead of consuming digital content and so on. So know the nuances. That is that is critical and it's a winning combination. Well and it as you're saying that it's making me think I'd love to have you on this. Like when we're ready for that, why am I not hiring comedians from that community as full-time <laughs> staff? Exactly. to come lead that effort. Do you know what I mean? Right. Exactly. And listen, we we just teamed up with uh, another company who does fractional shares. So just what you were talking about real estate, we had a post actually on real estate fractional shares and we call it, it's a series that we call Latinos in the House and it's super fun and we always are giving real estate advice and I'll send you the link. It's, it's great on how we explain how now you can invest with friends with this. And the moment people have the information, immediately they want to know where do I do it? Where's the link? How do I start investing? Who do you recommend? Who do you trust? That is the top question we get on our feeds. Who do you trust and who can we trust? Which is a lot of power, but at the same time, it's a lot of responsibility. How are we curating our partnerships? Because our promise of how do we can help our community build wealth? We don't, we're not in the business of building wealth for just our team or our investors. If I fail to help my community build wealth, my mission and my company has failed, no matter what is the valuation and what exit I could potentially have. The whole idea of building this company was to be able to do both, to do good and to do well. So we have to be very careful also on who are our partners. But yes, I mean, you could do it yourself when you're ready. We could also partner when you're ready. We're yeah, always okay, I'm going to call you back. Yeah, but how nothing else to get advice. We'll have the critical mass, right? We will be valuable to other partners who want to help our community build wealth, and we will have earned the trust and we will have the numbers that no one else has within this demographic to say this is a trusted and vetted a place that you can invest your money, and that'll be great. It'll be a win win win. I love it. Well, I think the next thing that I'm fascinated about your background and we interested in your advice is. I, I, so I got my first sales job like 25 years ago. And even when I've been the CEO of a private equity fund, I still like, I still feel like I'm just top sales guy. Right. So about 10 years ago, I realized if I could get a little better at marketing, I wouldn't have to sell so much, you know, then people come to me. So I've been this like closet marketer, you know, reading, you know, listening to so many marketing audiobooks and taking courses and our consulting firm, we have a few different marketing agency CEOs as clients. And I feel like I should be paying them because I learned so much from them, you know, <laughs> but, but one of the things that I come back to over and over is those folks who don't think about content marketing, like, oh, we need some 23 year old intern to make another Facebook post. But the people who think about themselves, like we need to make stuff so good that people are not watching TikToks to watch our stuff, or they're not watching Netflix to watch our stuff, like to actually consider we're going to compete with mainstream media and like hold themselves to that standard those people seem to do amazing versus the like people who count how many posts we put out the people who who say like is our quality like mainstream media quality kind of stuff and it seems like you brought that sensibility to what you're doing now can, can you talk about any thoughts of you have of how that could be kind of a more with less strategy 
to learn to to balance it out. I have to be honest, because at the beginning when we started our previous digital media company and then now with, with Suma, you come with that TV eye. So you want everything to be super polished, super beautiful, super overly produced. And, and there are moments when that is great, but there's some other moments where the team actually pushes me a lot when they're like, you just got to let it go. Like this is a timely post and we're posting, right? We're posting this meme now, the moment President Biden is signing this executive order because this is really funny, this instant. Like there's no time to design it. There's no time to overly produce it. It's going up and it's doing great for us after a minute. So I've had to let go a bit of that. I think doing both is great. You know, you, we're very mindful of our campaigns that we do. We did a, a very big campaign in December called Building Wealth Juntos, where we wanted to encourage people that instead of spending money, they would invest money, right? And give away fractional shares to stocks of companies their family members might like and learn that in the process. So that campaign was beautifully produced, right? And we did an incredible, and it did amazing for us. But so did the meme that we published, you know, two days ago with a very low quality video of the most popular soap opera of this woman yelling hysterically saying me this morning when I couldn't buy more GameStop, when my app didn't let me buy more GameStop stock, right? And that exploded for us. So what was the image perfect? Were, were the graphics beautiful? No, but it was timely. And that was also as important that we jumped into that conversation as we did into one that took us a month to produce for a holiday campaign, for example. Yeah. And I think probably more than anything, what I respect there is the thinking, high production quality, you know, stuff that looks more like user generated. Uh, you know, I'm with you of like, you can, you can be of that spectrum. But I think about, you know, I've done sales training for micro, like the top, the top sales team in the world for Microsoft. Their sales manager was one of my clients, right? You know, Oracle, big, big clients selling, you know, we have a billion dollar real estate fund that was a client of our consulting firm, right? And these guys will work so hard on the sales team and we've got so many sales trainings and stuff. And the senior executives are like kind of uninvolved in the marketing. Like they don't even know what social posts are going out. They're like, oh, make sure the social kid put out some social stuff. We, we, need, we need more social media, but they haven't taken the time to understand it. They haven't, they, they measure output instead of results. You know, how many did we do instead of how well did it work? You know, so I'm totally with you on production quality. And like, I want everything to look like a movie and it's very cinematic. We Me bought- too. <laughs> We bought one of those. We bought one of those uh, red cameras. You know, they make Lord of the Rings on or whatever, right? So yeah. we could do stuff like this. And, I've shot on those. <laughs> and it's big. It's big and cumbersome sometimes, and not the right tool for the job. You know. No, no but you're right. What you need, I mean, social media and social posts, that is the bloodline that you have. That's the connection that you have to your audience or to your consumer, to your customer. So you have to be very involved. I mean, for me, it comes natural. I always think either you go, you know, you're a business mayor or you're a marketing. I happen to be a marketing mayor. I wanted to be a film mayor, but I didn't get accepted to the school I wanted. So I had to settle for marketing. So they're like, it's, it's full. And they first took the California kids and the Americans and then the foreigners. So I was third on the list. So I studied marketing, not very happy to study marketing. And it's the best thing that's ever happened in my career because everything you do is 
everything I do is to tell a story. Everything I do is marketing, whether it's marketing yourself, your company, your community, your philanthropic efforts, anything. I think it's, it's very, very critical. So although I do have the awesome interns that are in their 20s and I do have highly creative people thinking about the 401k ideas, I'm very involved. And, you know, sometimes they're like, well, we're going to post something and you were on a meeting. So we posted and I'm like, that's fine. But I, I still read everything. I still look at everything. And it's not just that it's funny to your point. And it's not just that, oh, did we post every day? We are very analytical about what we do. I mean, incredible. Our, we measure engagement more than anything, because that's the one metric that to me is like love you sort of can't buy, right? You can buy a view, you can buy a like, you can buy, but engagement, which has the metrics of everything, it's hard to buy. So engagement for me is very, very important, which really shows that our community is fully immersed in what we're publishing and really interested in sharing it and saving it and commenting on it. So we sometimes, I, I did an investor update yesterday and my investors were shocked when they saw this, but I told them, listen, our we're getting better and better with our cost per acquisition. And, you know, we are now, I don't know, 90% less than most people in fintech. But we have tested that campaign that I was talking to you about, the Building Wealth Juntos campaign. We tested our ad 500 times before we perfect. So that funny meme, we tested 500 times, which most people would never think about it. If it's funny, if it looks cool, there you go. But we know, I mean, there's a lot that goes behind the scenes for something to be efficient. So let's dial down on that for just a second. Are there softwares you that you prefer or somebody who they haven't brought that level of scrutiny to their analytics and they want to get better at it, but they maybe don't know where to start? What, what softwares do you like? What programs do you like? Or how are you guys tracking? I mean, listen, we use a lot of just simple, I mean, we have some tools that, that we buy that are extra, but we started even just last year when we launched, we launched in, in November. So, and I'm at a pre-seed race. So we're definitely not using the very sophisticated software. We're using what's available to us with our Google analytics and our Facebook analytics, but we just test headlines. We test colors. We test images. We we had that from our team from my previous company, and I'm lucky to work with the exact same chief growth officer in this company. So she has front and center that that needs to be done to, to grow. So we have literally a team of two doing that. It can be, it doesn't need to be expensive, but it definitely needs to be intentional. And again, we don't test the timely stuff, but if it's going to be a campaign, we definitely want to put some thought behind how we're acquiring our customers. And are you doing that like you're sending an email just to some people and, and then a different one to other people and testing like A-B testing that way? Or what does that look like? Or blind posts as well. So okay. you can just blind post, see reaction one, two, three, this is the winner, test different things. So not so much emails. It's little posts on, on our social feeds. Okay. What's, what's another piece of advice for people who, you know, they, they realize that social media isn't for 13 year old girls only anymore, you know, and they're, they're going like, oh, we can get real business results. Even, you know, professionals have really been embracing LinkedIn in ways they haven't in the past. Right. But maybe they, they're realizing they need to bring more of a, like where you need to dial down your Hollywood, they probably need to dial it up. What's any advice for, for people who are going like, 
yeah, we do need to be more culturally relevant and we haven't in the past. Where, what would you give people as like a starting place to start really embracing that as a culture in their marketing department and their team? Well, I mean, you need to embrace it because that's just the way the world is today, right? Everything is social. Everything is digital. People are glued to their phone. I mean, it's almost depressing that you go out and, well, when we could go out and sit at restaurants, certainly not in Los Angeles now, but you see from the older parent to the little kids are all glued to their phones. Uh, so some things aren't great, but, but that's where the conversations are going, not just for young kids, right? My mom is on her WhatsApp all the time and she's almost 80. So that's the way that people are being marketed today within every generation. You have to understand what's the difference of sending, who would I send a text message to versus uh, WhatsApp to? Somebody very Spanish dominant, somebody who's an immigrant, somebody, that's a different way. So you have to, there's nuances, but they're very available to everyone. So the first thing would be to embrace that the world has changed and that's the way you market now. The good news is that it's highly efficient, right? The fact that you can, you know, target at such a detailed level of, I want women who are between 18 and 24, who live in Texas, who purchase makeup, who it's so incredible that you did not have that segmentation before when you were doing newspaper ads or billboards or TV. And it's also much more cost efficient. So the good news is it's much better for a company to be able to do it now. It's, it'll cost them less, it's more efficient, but yes, you need someone in your organization that fully understands it. And that's great because the new generations have grown up with phones in their hands. I mean, I had my daughter come and explain 10 years ago, I don't know if even, it could be eight years ago, what Snapchat was and how it worked to my entire exec team. Literally, she's opening their Snapchat accounts because we were gonna be on the Discover uh, page at that time. And nobody could understand Snapchat or how to use it. So she was, I think, eight or 10 at the time, and she came to give a class. So there's resources that are not going to be very avail uh, expensive to you of people who can you really can learn from. Sometimes yeah. she's like, don't try so hard. Don't answer every comment on your Suma feed. I'm like, what do you mean? I think it's great. Like, no, you're trying too hard. People are going to be... You're like, oh, wow, like I didn't or don't do an emoji on your newsletter to your investors like that is not cool anymore. That's for millennials. Right. She's a Gen Z. So it's interesting to hear, you know what? And it depends. That might not be your audience. If that's your audience, bring that sort of like executive in residence, Gen Z or millennial into your company and listen to what works for them, what's important for them. I think something very important that is not tied to social media, but it's just tied to where marketing is going in the world, is obviously that the companies that care for social causes are so much better positioned with the next generations than the ones who don't. I've seen my own kids who are 15 love a brand one day and all of a sudden they're like oh they support so and so or you know they're they don't do this for the environment no more do we ever want to eat there consume purchase it's over or now i want to support this because they support something that i believe in so that is also very very critical that brands understand that these younger generations are all about what does your company and what do you as a CEO or as a leader stand for and by and you know what changes are you making in the world so when people talk about the triple bottom line that's real right it just can't only be finance it should be finance too you want to build a profitable company but it's also social and it's also environmental today 
You know, it's funny. One of the programs that our consulting firm is partnered on is helping these high-level CEOs write a book, you know, writing their first book. And so this class I was teaching last week, there's one guy who's got a $150 million investment fund in it, another guy who manages $200 million, and then a woman who's raised like $8 billion for, as a third-party marketer for, for mutual funds that led to an init- another $30 billion in following way. And I was recommending to them to the book, the, I don't know if you know this book, uh, Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. He's no. a guy who wrote like some Disney movies like Blake Check and stuff, but he, he breaks screenwriting down into this like very formulaic thing of like, okay, for the first little bit, it's life as usual. And then at 10%, there's an inciting incident. At 15%, they have to decide their old life or their new life. And then it's fun and games until 50% when the bad guys start winning. And then it, everything goes downhill until 85%. And then at 95%, you think everything's gone. There's a climax and it ends, right? And it's kind of like, you know, boy has girl, boy keeps girl, boy still has girl is not a movie, but boy has girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girls back, girl back. That's a movie. Like you got to have conflict. You got to have an arc. Right. And, you know, here's a bunch of like serious finance people who, you know, they know Excel spreadsheets inside and out. And I was having them check the book out for this idea of like, can you bring some storytelling? Can you bring some like edutainment to what you're doing so you can keep people long enough to educate them, you know? And it seems like you've got that in spades from your background. Well, listen, it's so funny that you say that. My co-founder in Suma, actually, who he had the idea to launch Suma, because I certainly did not have a fintech company in my my to-do list by any means. When he approached me and he's like, listen, I've been wanting to launch this company and you are the perfect person and CEO. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't have a finance background. I'm the worst person. He's like, no, no, you're the perfect person because you're a storyteller. You're a marketer. You come from inter- like everything that you do. It'll be successful because you're not a, a financier. And I just, I couldn't really understand it. And now that we're at it and now I'm like, I, I get it. You know, maybe at some point, you know, you, you might benefit from a different CEO as the company grows. It does have that financial background. But for now, as we build a community, we build the brand, we build the scale, we tell the story. I can see the benefit of having somebody that's out of that sort of finance world and not so much. I, although I do love my Excel spreadsheets and my budgets, I am good at that. But definitely my background is in marketing. Yeah. Well, I know we're winding down here. Why don't, for another subject, I'd love to hear about your experience fundraising and kind of some of the successes you've had in the past and how it's going. Sure. Well, listen, I am a very small percentage of women who are Latinas, who are immigrant, who get funding. I had never raised venture capital before until my previous company where I raised a little bit over $50 million. So for a Latina, that's sort of unheard of. You top of the list, which is, exciting and depressing at this at the same time. This go around, I've raised a lot less, a little bit over 1.2 million in a pre-seed round. I wanted to do everything different that I did in my in my previous race, where I was Googling what venture capital was on my way to meet Peter Chernin, right? I had no idea what a venture capital firm was, what a series A be. I remember when he asked us, are you racing a series A? We're like, yeah, like it seemed like a that's where you start. Now I'm like, why did we not raise a pre-seed to see it? Anyway, we had no idea what we what we were doing this this time around. It was diff. I mean, I I was very scared. It was in the middle of a pandemic, two weeks before the presidential election. Everything via Zoom. A very different set of investors. A pre-seed than a Series A, B, C, D, which is when we exited. So, but it, it, I was incredibly lucky that the majority of my investors felt that the mission was very close to, to their own values and 
what they wanted to support. So 98, 99% of them are women. 98% are Latinas. I think every single Latina inventor is, is an investor in the company. And it was great. I was able to raise my round in a couple of weeks and it was an oversubscribed round. And I feel incredibly grateful, blessed. And I understand that that is absolute privilege. So I, every day I devote a good amount of my time to opening doors to other women like myself that don't get those opportunities, that don't have those contacts, relationships, or trust from people that they just meet. Because I I do understand that I am definitely an outlier um, when it comes to fundraising. That's great. Well, congratulations on the success in both both counts. Thank you. Thank you. I feel it as Um, a responsibility as well. You know, it's it's great. And then you're like, you have a panic attack at night of like, I have to deliver. Thankfully, the numbers are going great. So it looks like we're on the right track, but obviously you, you never know. And you can only do your best. I'm a type A personality. So I take investments with a lot of, of commitment of, of what I want to give back as they are also part of our community. I was very mindful of who was in my cap table this, this time around. So when we say building wealth juntos or building wealth together, they are part of that same cohort. So I definitely want to do good for my community and for my investors that have believed in the mission of the company. Yeah. When you think about both, you know, successfully raising over 50 million last time and this time getting your money in less than two weeks, what's a, what's a fundraising tip that you have for other entrepreneurs out there? Um, you know, I got, I, I had a very similar question one time by another Latina woman who asked in not in as nice way as you did she, but, but it'll, it'll add to the story. She asked, well, how have you been able to raise over $50 million being a Latina, being an immigrant, having that accent and being so short? Right. And I was incredibly shocked by that question. I'm not a person that usually is out of words, but I was out of words. And this is at a conference at the White House that Michelle Obama was hosting for entrepreneurs and that I was speaking at. And it took me a minute to respond to her. And but it but now I have an answer when people ask me, how did you do it? I used to say, I I don't know. I'm just lucky. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Now I have an answer. And my answer is exactly feeling the opposite as the way this woman described me and that I think a lot of women or people of color or people who are not your usual white man that has been successfully been able to raise capital feel. So for me, for some strange reason, and maybe it's just an arrogant trait, when I first went into venture firms, I did not know the data. I did not know I was going to be an outlier. There's few people that get funding, nothing. But I would look around the rooms and I would see a sea of sameness. All the men were the same. All the men were, you know, identical. I felt incredibly empowered for some reason. So I never felt small. I never felt less. I never felt like the other. I never felt intimidated. I felt like, oh my God, this is great. There's nobody like me here. I've got this, like everything that I bring to this table of sameness is fantastic because they need me to grow or to, you know, lead a company in an area that they don't know anything about. So I think a lot was attitude. I mean, I'm going to say I'm very passionate about what I do. I I deeply care about my community. I I think another thing is I, everything that I do, I want to do good and do well. So that just energy in the world works out for me. 
But I do think that just having that white man swagger and knowing your worth and your contributions that you're adding to any place that you step in, whether it's raising capital or whether it's an executive team or a board, not to say I've never felt anxiety of uh, imposter syndrome. I have, particularly in very high profile boards that I'm lucky to be a part of where nobody else in the room needs a name tag but me, right? There is like everyone's known and they're like, and who is that Mexican lady in the corner? So there are moments when you're like, how did I get here? Am I going to contribute enough? I need to be overprepared. But even there, you know, you take a deep breath and you check what your contributions are going to be. And I think that just helps a lot. Just that attitude of what you bring, what you know, what your life experience is, is incredibly valuable. Don't go in feeling less or small, go in feeling more and empowered, I would say. Yeah. You know, I identify with that in a, in a complete, you know, in a different set of circumstances of I think any one of us can feel like an outsider. We can all list the reasons we're an outsider. You know, like I, I remember being so anxious. I was on this board. I was speaking at a finance conference in New York and it was like the head of CCMP, a $12 billion fund, uh, head of a $9 billion Morgan Stanley fund, head of Natural Gas Partners, $11 billion fund, and Jess with his $27 million fund. <laughs> like I'm missing, I'm missing three zeros, right? A million, right, right. <laughs> right. And, and I, and I got, you know, I was the youngest guy by probably 15 years. Most of the guys were my dad's age on this panel. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and like, it was like really apparent to me and like my chance to like, feel like the outsider of like, cause I'm an art school dropout. I'm not a, I'm not a real finance guy. I'm a pretend finance guy. Right. I love it. I'm like, Hey, you know, like you don't understand how hard life could be for me. My daddy didn't get me a job at Goldman Sachs after he got me into Harvard. I'm an right. art school dropout. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> right. And, and then I think about other times, like we raised that 27 million in like 2008, 2009, 2010, when nobody was raising money, Amazing. right? But we were kind of too dumb to know that you can't raise money right now. Like very legitimate private equity firms just shut their fundraising down after summer 2008. And we were raising like $3 million a month sometimes, you know, but, but it was also this like, well, the art school kid doesn't know that you shouldn't be fundraising right now. And so we did. That's it. Right. Not no, I didn't know either. I didn't. That's why I was so much more concerned now raising a million dollars thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm the 0.35% stat, right? Like, am I going to be able to do it? And via zoom and via this and an economic downturn and before the election. And there were so many things. And I was just like, okay, but the swagger I had six years ago when I was raising the 50 bucks, I was just like walking into those rooms. Like I own those rooms in Silicon Valley and New York and whatever, you know, like I would, you know, lean harder into my accent and my every, like I was just so unapologetically me and beyond. But once you know more, once you're like, well, you know, it might not be that easy this go around. It might not be easy via Zoom. It might not be that easy because you don't come from who's going to give you money. Now you're a fintech CEO. Like, what is that? You know, it gets to you. I think the less you know, it's better. But even if you know, I do think that you know more than you think, you know, that's my, my thing now on boards. I'm always also thinking, oh my gosh, like what's my contribution with all these like Olympic athletes and owners of teams and, and things like that, or what am I doing on this back? Like I'm Googling the word, not Googling the word, but it's 
it's definitely not where I've played and feel super comfortable, but I do try to challenge myself into doing things that are uncomfortable. And then I'm like, I'm a fast learner, right? I'm going to, but I also feel that responsibility of like, oh no, I'm the only Latina here. I'm the only woman. I'm the only person I've got. Like you feel that you want to represent in a good way. So you, there's a lot of pressure as well, but we got to take those chances and just go for it. Yeah, if you're given I, I, the opportunity, take it and then don't forget that you need to open a lot more doors if you're the one who's in. Yeah, I think as I listen to you, I think about my own story. I really think a lot of it has to do with confidence. Like I think about the things that I have raised large amounts of money for and it's stuff that I have like a really, really deep conviction. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like that, that just becomes contagious. And I'm just like, I'm just the conduit. It's not even really about me. Right. You know, I'm just the glue between them and this great opportunity. And I'm kind of almost a little irrelevant. I'm just the glue that that made this like, you know, I'm it's like I'm not even telling them about me. I'm telling them about like this great thing they could have. And I just happen to be the the voiceover or something. Yeah, you know? no, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think I think that's dead on. And I do think like confidence. There was a book that Diana Karp wrote called 31 CEOs Who Run the World. And, and it was very interesting to see, and female CEOs who run the world. And the thread that she, she told me that it's like every CEO has a story that's similar to yours, where it's like, who was that one person that gave you that confidence? And it was always tied to the father. I found that very interesting because to me, if people say, oh, who's, you know, the biggest figure, who has been your biggest role model? Who's, I always say, you know, hands down to my, my dad, who, you know, really thought I could do and be anything I wanted to. And then when when they had these other in, interviews of CEOs from every industry, it tied to their dads making them incredibly confident when they were little girls. So I, I found that pretty fascinating. I've, I've got two daughters. That makes me think about a little bit different about being a dad. That's great. <laughs> No, it's, I mean, dads play a very big role model for, I mean, we've known that already, but I I thought that that was so interesting that out of the 31 female CEOs, every single story had a moment of their dad making them incredibly confident and making sure they understood they could be anything they aspired to be. That's fascinating. Well, listen, everybody go to sumawealth.com and that's S-U-M-A wealth.com. They've got great social media. Th- thanks for thanks for doing this interview. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time, Jess. And whenever you're uh, ready to dive into the Young Latino demo, let me know. Happy to help or anybody who's listening. I'm on LinkedIn also. So aside of Suma, always happy to be a source of how to better target and serve our, our community that every day grows more and definitely you will need to future-proof your brands. So great. Bye, guys. <laughs>